This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The production of biologics is costly and takes time. Dyadic has developed a proprietary manufacturing process that replaces the use of Chinese hamster ovary cells, long used to produce protein therapeutics, with a fungus that has a long history in industrial biotechnology applications. The company believes its process can produce drugs faster, in greater volumes, and at significantly lower cost than biotech processes in use today. We spoke to Mark Emmelfarb, CEO of Dyadic, about its manufacturing process, the benefits it could bring, and why it may have big implications for drug makers. Mark, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about fungus, about the manufacturing of biologic and Dyadic's expression system that promises to significantly reduce manufacturing costs for biologics and vaccines. Let's start with the way biologics are produced today. What do companies typically use to produce biologics, and what are the limits? Well, currently, the dominant uh, manufacturing technology for making glycoproteins like antibodies, things like Humirin, Amberel, EPO, and multi-billion dollar drugs, are made in Cho cells. And Cho cells are Chinese hamster ovary cells. And the limitations are those of basically the Cho cell in a natural state is not really made to secrete proteins. So they're taking something and turned something from nature into something unnatural. And by doing that, they've done a good job over the last three decades in being able to manufacture these antibodies and other protein drugs using Cho cells. But they've done so in a way that, in our opinion, is inefficient and too costly, especially in light of the pressures we're getting today on the healthcare systems where patients aren't getting access to these expensive drugs. The population is growing, the drug population, the needs of the patients as we get older, things like rheumatoid arthritis. And the third world isn't getting these drugs at all in a lot of cases because they're unaffordable. And that's because the pharmaceutical industry has been using Cho cells for three decades because it was the first thing that Genentech brought in and got approved and it's safe, it's effective, and uh, people are comfortable with it. Through the industrial biotech, which is the side of the business that we came through, we couldn't make a product using Cho cells and make it economical and affordable, nor could we produce in large enough volume to satisfy the market demand. So we're bringing a highly productive industrial biotech system called, we call it nicknamed C1. It's a fungus we found in Russia in the early 1990s called Mycephathora thermophila, 
and has spent the last two decades improving its productivity, its robustness, its versatility, its scalability, its programmability in order to be able to take DNA from whatever source it may come from and insert it into these fungal cells and make large volumes of low-cost protein. believe that in the end, be able to do it somewhere between two to ten times higher yield and half the time, which would be somewhere between 40 and 20 times lower cost to produce. This is a, an innovation-driven industry, although it, it seems to me much of the work of this industry that's been innovative is, is focused on the design of therapeutics, the, the different modalities, as opposed to innovation in manufacturing, except when it's been necessary to, to solve a specific problem in, in terms of yields or some other aspect for a specific drug. Is that a fair assessment? And if so, why hasn't this industry put more effort into innovating manufacturing processes? Well, I think it's been the course of least resistance. They've been able to pass the buck. So the pharmaceutical companies can spend the money, produce them in inefficient ways, and be able to have the healthcare system, the government, that absorb the cost. And so they can make their 80 to 90 percent margins in the past doing that. The world's changed. I think the world's woken up and realized that we have to take the most scientific advanced technologies and apply them to solving the world's problems. And in this case, that would be to develop a whole new cell line they can make things at a fraction of the cost they're being made at today. However, with that, the challenge is applying a new science, getting that science to be able to do the things that we're aiming it to do, and then getting the regulatory agencies to buy into that and make sure that they're safe and effective for patients. And if you can just do the things, same thing you've done for years in the same way and get away with it, you're going to continue to do that. So that's where I think the problem has been in the past. Now, all of a sudden, these biologic drugs are coming off patents. And just as the generic drug business did for the chemistry industry and brought the cost of generic drugs down, biosimilars are really generic versions of biologic drugs, although they're a little more complex and a little more difficult to basically replace with similar products. In the end, that's where the world's going because it's unsustainable the way it's been going in the long run. I wonder if you would, for a moment, step back. You, you mentioned that you first started using this fungus for industrial applications. Walk us through your previous work and, and how you came to see its potential for producing biotherapeutics and, and vaccines. Well, I think when we started the journey way back in the uh, 70s, late 70s, we were actually selling pumice known to Levi, Guess, and Wrangler stonewashed blue jeans. And through that, we got into enzymes because enzymes came to displace the pumice in the stonewash process to make it a greener, cleaner, more environmentally friendly process. And then that led us to develop our own methods how to make these enzymes, where we actually ended up, when the wall fell in Russia, hiring 35 Russian scientists to go find a microbe out of nature that could secrete enzymes that would soften and fade denim and make it more comfortable and more fashionable. And through that evolution, and the improvement of that technology for the stonewash gene business, genes with a J, it evolved into the genes with a G, genetic genes business, by taking a filamentous fungi in nature that made a small amount of what we wanted, bringing it back in the United States, and bred it over and over and over again until it 
increase the productivity levels of the things we wanted. And through that process, we had a serendipitous mutation, kind of how penicillin was found by accident, which coincidentally was another fungus. In this particular case, we changed the morphology of the physical structure to a random mutagenesis, which I mean by luck or by random genetic shifts. This is before the human genome and the sequencing of genomes and all the advanced skills and tools that people have today, which we've now imparted upon C1. But back then, this was done randomly. It changed the physical form so that the fungus grows in a way where you would secrete proteins typically in long filaments. So if you envision a woman's hair being a foot long and at the two tips, you'd be secreting the protein of the product coming out. We then micronized it by accident through the serendipitous mutation so that hair became whiskers. And now you have 100 tips that same length or the same mass spewing out proteins, which led to high productivity, lower the cost, and just as importantly, reduced the viscosity, which allowed us to put it into these commercial tanks, these large fermentation vessels, and be able to agitate it uniformly under low agitation and be able to feed it in a uniform way. So that serendipitous mutation led to the productivity level of the C1 cell line. And then when we continued to randomly mutate it again to try to make even higher and higher levels, we changed the fungus again, its cell structure, to a random event where we basically deleted the genes in the system in a way that it would make now pure proteins. Instead of making 23 different enzymes in the same cell at the same time, it would now make 80% of the one protein you wanted. So the energy was going to all one protein versus being split up amongst a variety of different genes being turned on in the cell, making a variety of different things, which led us to high productivity and high purity. And that's when we looked at it and said, this is remarkable. Not only can we make them at low cost, we can make them with high purity, and that would allow you to retain more after you have to process them and purify them further downstream. Is there any way you can quantify the potential savings in either time or cost or manufacturing footprint of the, the C1 fungus, say, compared to a Cho cell manufacturing process? Well, it, it, simply in terms of time, it normally takes somewhere between two to three weeks to prepare a Cho cell cell line to go into fermentation. In the case of C1, that's two or three days. So that's virtually almost a two-week savings in time on the front end. Most importantly, when you put it into these large vessels, these fermentation facilities, or these big tanks, C1 takes five to seven days to grow, versus typically Cho cells take 14 days, so we can do it in half the time. So if we can do it in half the time, and we can do it at two to ten times larger yield, that's somewhere between 40 to 20 times lower cost. That doesn't even take into account the fact that the media, which are the ingredients you use to feed these cells, in the case of C1, it's at least tenfold lower cost in simpler media than you use in the Cho cell media that they use to produce Cho cells. And then another advantage is, in the case of Cho cells and mammalian cells, you have potential viruses you have to screen out in a purification stage. In the case of C1, you don't have to do that because you're not producing any viruses in a fungus. So overall, you have half the time or less, two to ten times higher yield, 
with greater purity, less retained contaminants, and no viruses. So it's almost a no-brainer. As you think about some of the applications, you know, I, th I think of the threat of pandemics today. Would this allow for large volume and rapid production of vaccines? Yeah, that's one of the benefits of C1 is its robustness, its versatility. We've grown it up in a variety of different fermentation facilities in Poland, in Mexico, in Spain, in Canada, and the United States. And so it's very flexible. It's very robust. can operate in deep tank, deep tank fermentations, whether those are E. coli or yeast. Even we put them in uh, antibiotic fermentations in the past where we those fermenters are sitting idle. Companies that used to produce erythromycin that no longer are having these tanks sitting around. But the beautiful thing is, as you pointed out, we've actually scaled and produced commercial products between ourselves and our past licensees, which are companies like BISF, Shell Oil through Codexis, Have and Go Up Bioenergy, and now DuPont, up to 500,000 liter scale, which is 25 times the size of the largest Cho cell plant. In the case of biologics for vaccines, if you need a lot of something quickly, C1 is a, is a cell line that I think can deliver on that promise. And in addition to that, from preliminary results, the immunogicity, which means stimulating the immune response so that the vaccine can work better, and C1 looks to be equal or better than some of the potential existing ways and methods being used today. So not only can we potentially make them for less and larger volumes, but the performance might be even better. Biosimilars and biobetters is something you referred to earlier. This is a place where cost savings can be leveraged. How does that fit into your strategy? Well, I think there's a cost savings from at least two fronts. CapEx, that means the cost of building the facility, and then OpEx, which is the ongoing operational cost of running the facility over the years. And I think there was a recent article where Samsung Biologics has built or is in the process of building a $730 million plant to produce biologics. That's a pretty big investment up front. We believe that if C1 can be engineered to produce the same quality of protein coming out of a Joe cell, that a fraction of the size plant will be needed to be operated so the capex cost can be reduced at least half maybe by two-thirds, if not more. And the OPEX cost is dramatically cheaper as well. As we mentioned before, the media cost is one-tenth or less than the media cost as well. So from an operational day-in, day-out manufacturing cost and a CAPEX upfront cost, the, the hurdles to getting in and building the facilities using C1 can be monumentally lower. And then there's also companies out there like GE, PAL, Thermal Fisher that are developing new ways to, to use single-use reactors, which are smaller reactors and throwaway reactors, where if you can produce C1 in a single-use reactor at high levels at low cost in half the time, you might be able to do these smaller facilities or companies like, or countries like Brazil or Russia, et cetera, can actually produce their own biologics in their own countries without having to spend a billion dollars to build a plant. I wonder if this opens another opportunity for you in terms of biosimilars in that 
much of the IP for a, a, a biotherapeutic rests in its manufacturing. Does having this manufacturing process eliminate barriers to competing with existing biologics that are still under patent protection? Could you use this platform to bring a biosimilar to market for a biologic that's still under patent protection? If it's based on a manufacturing process using a chosel, the answer is likely yes. So there is another opportunity, of course. And then, of course, the opportunity here in the end is, you know, the, the completely changing the game in the cost structure by leapfrogging Cho cell production costs by, again, we believe somewhere between, you know, two and ten times higher yield and half the time, so four to 20 times lower cost structure. So in the end, people are starting to do biosimilars today. They're just using another Cho cell line that somebody else has. They're all pretty well standard in the same range. So the only advantage is they can all produce at about the same cost structure. They're just cutting into the margins. So really all they're doing is making less money. We're going to change the structural foundation of producing proteins. We're not talking about just cutting a margin on the same cost that everyone else has and just forcing lower and lower profits. We're going to enable the pharmaceutical companies to continue to make nice profits but bring more affordable, more accessible, lower-cost proteins to patients with greater access and at the same time significantly reduce the burden to the healthcare systems across the globe. Are there regulatory hurdles you must overcome before the system is used for human therapeutics, or is that something that would be reviewed on a drug-by-drug basis? Well, overall, of course, all the drugs are reviewed drug-by-drug basis, but it's going to take time and effort for the FDA and other regulatory agencies to get comfortable with a protein produced from this particular cell line because they haven't seen one before. They've seen them in the industrial world because we have a grass status, which is called generally recognized as safe for a food enzyme produced using C1. So there are safety, toxicity, pathogenicity studies that we've already run with C1 showing that safe and effective and that the path forward looks to be clear and the green lights are on. But once the first person takes a drug through, it'll be easier for the second and the fifth and tenth. And ultimately, we would hope that the FDA and other regulatory agencies would recognize the enormous benefits that a cell line like C1 would bring to patients in the healthcare system in the cost and access, that they would actually accelerate some of those studies. But in the end, they have to make sure that these drugs produced using C1 are safe and effective. So is there some timeline in that regard? Well, there is a timeline. What that is, it's undefined at the moment because we don't have the first drug going through yet. What's the business model here? Is is the plan to license the technology, produce your own drugs, become a contract manufacturer? Well, I think there's a variety of business opportunities that we're evaluating, we're looking at. Currently, what we're doing is we're working with some of the top 10 pharmaceutical companies. We actually have small proof-of-concept research deals with two of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, and we're in discussions with several others. In fact, we expect to have our third deal sometime in Q3 and potentially more by the end of the year or Q1 next year. And what we're doing there is we're, we're taking genes that they have that they want to have us 
express in C1, and then it will evaluate the productivity. And then the last piece of the puzzle, which we're working on now, is through synthetic biology and the advances in biotech and all the molecular tools that are available, where glycoengineering the C1 cell line so that the proteins come out in a mammalian-like, Cho cell-like glyco pattern so that they look like human proteins. And if we can do that with a high yield, it's a game changer. Well, what kind of interest has there been in the technology, and, and what are some of the near-term milestones to watch for? Well, the interest is growing because I think people are starting to wake up and realize that Cho cells work. They work good, but they're too expensive. I think that some of the things that we've come across in the discussions and conversations and negotiations we've had and are having with big pharma companies, there are new treatments coming out, new antibodies that are going to require higher doses of antibodies per patient. And Cho cells just aren't going to be able to make those new drugs at the right cost. So in that particular case, you know, that C1 is a potential perfect fit. So to me, the milestones coming up are we're going to hopefully continue to land new contracts, new research deals, and hopefully those will lead into bigger deals and license agreements where either on a non-exclusive basis, upfront fees, royalties, milestones will be paid to dyadic, and or ultimately somebody's going to come in and want to buy the technology on an exclusive basis and control this. Mark Emelfarb, CEO of Dyadic. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.